I mean, like we talked about, we talked a little bit about like what we might talk about now. And I gave you a bunch of stuff that was kind of disorganized. Um, I loved it because... Any of it of interest to you that we can like, I mean, maybe you should just like pick and choose and we can like run with it and see, see where we I mean, up. totally because, because of my no reading the news policy, I have no way of what's going on in the world. So it is actually really helpful hmm. for people to tell me. And based on what you told me, it's actually a little bit worrying, which actually does support the original point I made in that Atlantic piece about not following the news and ignorance being bliss. Yeah. Like, I don't feel good about this. Yeah. Did I really need to know that China is developing hypersonic weapons technology beyond what we're capable of? They're actually outflanking us on these military metrics. That's frightening to me. And now I know, and now I can't unknow it. I mean, is there nothing that we can do about it? We do have a podcast, and we are writers who write on foreign policy at least some of the time. Yeah. So I guess I should probably know that China is getting ahead of us in these respects. Um, but, you know, what can we really do about it? Uh, that, yeah, it just makes me panic a little bit. So that's one thing I definitely want to talk about and get and just hear if you think there's a way forward on this and how we should maybe better think about it. Um, Listen, uh, here, here, here's a, here's a, um, I think an interesting way to think about it. Um, you know, I guess it's been striking to a certain extent talking to my non-foreign policy oriented colleagues um, at the paper. They sometimes say to me, it's just like, okay, but like war with China, it's not really gonna happen, right? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> like maybe, hopefully not, right? Um, but I think, I think that gets us to sort of a problem when you say like, what can we do about it? Which is like a really DC problem, right? The weird thing about, about DC is that we spin up a framework where we're going to war with China. And then through that framework, we interpret every news event. So China is developing hypersonic weapons. I mean, we're developing hypersonic weapons too. Uh, you but know, they're ahead of us so They're ahead far. of us, okay. But, you know, I mean, there's like a flip side. They know we're developing hypersonic weapons. So of course they're gonna develop hypersonic <laughs> weapons. And, and so, okay, they're ahead of us. So how do we get ahead of them and then it does become a bit of a self-fulfilling thing. And this takes all the ideology stuff aside about like China being evil and authoritarian must be defeated as you say and 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 all the rest of it, which is which is which is fine. Um but you but you know what I mean like it's that's one of the things that that like that I I I'm grappling with a lot more. Is when you swim in DC all the time and and all like the DC bullshit world, um, a lot of it just becomes sort of se seems self-evident. And you're like, well, obviously, you know, this is a big problem. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we have to spend a boat ton more money to catch up. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I, I still sort of believe that because I still am in DC world in a lot of ways. I think that, that the logic of these things is sort of hard to avoid. Um, but I am struck by 
like the Biden administration's approach to all of this stuff, um, where, you know, they're like trying to manage all of these problems, but also are really hesitant to start talking about them in terms of war in the sense that like what you may need to, you know, reverse something like this actually is to hike defense spending by a whole bunch and probably would require President Biden to get in front of the TV, uh, get in front of the TV cameras and address the nation and say, my fellow Americans, you know, uh, it's been a good run since the end of the Cold War. We're in a different world right now. We need to act like it, take it more seriously. And, uh, you know, one sort of criticism of Biden is to say, well, you know, this is really uh, catastrophic that he's not doing that because we need to catch up to the Chinese and et cetera. But the other, I think probably the Biden folks would say is war is not inevitable. Uh, the American people aren't ready for it, don't want to be, don't want to go to war, it'd be politically disastrous. So why should we make that speech? And, you know, I mean, as an analyst, you say, well, the world is getting more dangerous. We need to be doing this. The challenge is coming. But I, I'm, I'm, I keep getting bothered by this question in the back of my mind. It's just like, what if it's sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if you let that happen? Um, and that like Biden's sort of slow rolling this thing um, is more prudent policy. I just don't know. I don't know what you think about that, like as a former, <laughs> former foreign policy addict uh, and on these sorts of things. I don't know. Look, I I am intrigued by this idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy and that how in, in some ways we run the risk of creating our own realities, that if we keep on putting ourselves on a war footing, it does make war more likely and it does put into motion a number of other developments and consequences that escalate. You know, that that is that is certainly one way of looking at it. I don't want Americans to panic. Um, I don't want to panic. I actually don't want to think so much about going to war from a personal level. Um, and um, and if levels of depression and politically induced fatigue and exhaustion are already plaguing our country, that we're already overwhelmed by politics and overwhelmed by a sense of catastrophe, do we really want to add the immediate prospect of war to the list of things we're asking Americans to be perpetually worried about? So I think that from a politician's standpoint of someone who ultimately wants to not freak people out, and I think that presidents do have a responsibility to not freak people out unless they have a compelling reason to do so, then perhaps Biden's approach is more prudent. I don't think war is inevitable. Um, and clearly colleagues and friends of yours don't think it's inevitable. And, but maybe that's our, you know, we as Americans just, we have trouble actually imagining certain possibilities in part because we are, we are part of a culture that values progress. So it goes against everything we feel and know about the trajectory that history takes. Are we really getting to a point where we could have a massive war with China that is worse than anything we could have imagined, you know, at least since World War II? I just don't think Americans are primed to think that way, to think that those things are even possible because it goes against the arc of history. 
so maybe we should face facts. Maybe we should stop having this illusion of progress and the naivete that comes along with it. And maybe a speech would from Biden telling us guys get ready for war would push us out of our um, our complacency. I don't know, but I don't want to deal with all this stuff. Yeah, no, I I'm mean, torn. Arguably, the speech wouldn't have to be like, get ready to send your sons to die. It could just be, you know, we need to take this more seriously in order to head off a catastrophe, not necessarily okay, get ready well, for okay. war, but get stronger in order to. But again, that also has its own logic, right? It has its own logic of sort of getting us there faster. Um, it's, it's, it's the question of like, what's prudent stewardship, I guess, right? Is like, um, and, and that's, and we get back to the question of whether, whether we're on, we, you know, in the foreign policy world are in our own bubble and we sort of create our own realities, as you said. Um, but analysis would say like, all these things are pointing one way. Um, sure, we're, we're, we're part of the cycle, but uh, you know, the best way out of the cycle is to come out on top and, and deter, you know, potential aggression uh, against something like this. Okay, um, you bring up deterrence. Now, I, I want to bring up something related to that that mm -hmm. I think gets at maybe a more fundamental issue. And it has to do with Donald Trump. Mm. He had this fascinating interview on Fox News with Tucker Carlson, and we'll include yeah. a link to that in the show notes. And I'm not saying fascinating facetiously at all. I actually, okay, I I like broke out laughing several times. He's back. I mean, I was actually surprised because I think my sense had been that Trump was losing his mojo and he just wasn't as funny. He wasn't able to connect with people the way he used to. He was he was becoming self-pitying and obsessed with his own legal troubles and stuff like that. So I don't know if he's I don't know if this is changing and if he if it is, I think Americans should take notice, especially Democrats, and be aware of the kind of candidate he can be, which is a compelling one. Mm. And I don't know if you felt the same way in watching that 10 minute clip, but I was I was like, damn, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, well, it's, I mean, it's at least on the, you know, the, the, the first part is about his arraignment and it is a little bit self-pitying, but also- But then he moved, then he shifts from he it. He shifts pretty quickly onto foreign policy. And that's, I mean, you know, insofar as foreign policy will probably play a pretty big role in him, uh, crapping on Biden in the election. Yeah. On and Ukraine. I was like, wait, damn, yeah. Trump knows about foreign policy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and then, oh. then it's, and, and, and he does also, he also just plays into the, the that, that, that thing, uh, which is, I am tough man. And, you know, it's a tough world. And yeah. as you said, deterrence, like. This is the remarkable thing. So let me yeah. just lay this out for people because it is not something I would have normally felt comfortable talking about, but because this is a, a long form podcast, you know, I don't think that anything I say on this will go viral, but um, this is why we love podcasts and we, why we love wisdom of crowds. Because we don't go viral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and we've talked about this, you and I, Demir, in, in social settings, but I don't think we've really talked about it much on the podcast, which is, would Trump have invaded Ukraine if Trump 
had still been president. If Trump had won a second term, would Putin have, would yeah. Putin have done that? And Trump actually brings that up in a rather explicit way, making very clear that Putin would not have invaded. Yeah. But 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 obviously he has an interest in saying that, of course. So I'm just, right. but I'm just saying that Trump is definitely making this point very explicitly. Yep. Um, and I suppose his argument is that it's a version of the madman of the madman theory of international relations that um, I was going to say Ronald Nixon, <laughs> that Richard Nixon had um, popularized in the late 60s and 70s, which is this idea that this guy is fucking crazy and our opponents and adversaries don't want to take a chance because you don't know for sure whether the crazy person is serious about their craziness. But then again, you can't be sure that the crazy person isn't serious about their craziness. So you got to hedge your bets and be pretty careful. And, and Trump's and, explicit about it in his remarks, too. He says, like, you know, that he threatened Putin and he threatened Xi, <laughs> like, apparently extravagantly. Now, who knows if that's true? That's the other part. Like, that's the thing with Trump. And it's just like, how yeah. much of this has anything to do with anything? But uh, yeah. but it was the same thing with also yeah, George yeah, he, George he says, W. Bush did mm -hmm. a version of this as well. Like people thought George W. Bush was crazy around the time of the Iraq War, right? And there was a sense that he could pretty much invade anywhere. Yeah, like who knows what this guy will do? But I just like that Trump said that ten percent. Like that was the they were. He was oh, just yeah. like yeah. He's like oh that was hilarious. <laughs> he was just like that. Yeah, I don't know if they believe me all the way, but they believe me ten percent. Which actually goes very specifically to how the madman theory works. Exactly. They don't need to be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. Um, and what he, what he said also in regards to the Taliban, uh, which was pretty funny, he kept on referring to this guy called Abdul. He's like, when I was talking to the Taliban, when I was talking to Abdul, I showed Abdul <laughs> Photo a, of picture of it, a picture of his house. Yeah. And then Abdul was confused and... Trump apparently said, like, um, you know what I'm talking about or something like that. Oh, don't use your well, use your imagination. <laughs> you, oh, yeah. Use your imagination. So Trump was essentially threatening to blow Abdul up. Um, but this is the broader point he was making in regards to Putin. Like, and he wasn't clear about, like, what the consequences were. But it was like, I, Trump, told Putin that if he tries any of that, just like crazy things are going to happen. Terrible things are going to happen. No. And if she invades Taiwan, again, like Trump was like, listen, we can have a great relationship, the US and China, and you guys, we're happy to let you do whatever. But if you cross this one red line, we will destroy you. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you feel about that? I mean, tell me how you feel about that, because because this is Trump's transactionalism. He's like, Uyghurs, you know, yeah, it's not my problem. We can have a great relationship. We trade, you know, you great country of China. But you, if you if you do this one thing, I mean, I'm intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by it. I don't I think there's a way to combine that approach to deterrence with a prioritization of human rights and democracy. I don't think it's one or the other. So it's not as if the Biden administration is not capable of making threats. Now, the question is, if Biden makes threats, are they credible? Right. And That's that right. is the fundamental issue here. 
My sense is that no matter what Biden tells President Xi or or Putin, they're going to doubt him because Biden is a reasonable person. Yeah. He's a good man. And he's prudent, just like Obama was. Yeah. And they'll say, well, when push comes to shove, these people aren't as crazy as us. They aren't just going to like start blowing shit up. So I think there's an issue here of can the U.S. be more a credible interlocutor when it actually does draw clear red lines? And we can go back to Obama and the red line in Syria. Yeah. Because he did, Obama in 2013 did draw a clear red line. And then proved that it was not credible, exactly. Exactly, yeah. So I think there is a really fascinating set of questions here that it, Trump perhaps, it's, it, and it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's partly personality. I agree, but it's also right. Is is you know, but it is how you set it up. I mean, I, I agree with that as well. I suppose uh, you know you get you get like a more belligerent um, uh, Wilson, you know, like a kind of true believer, and who's also maybe I yeah, maybe it's your essay that you never wrote about John McCain. You know, like a belligerent true oh. believer in human rights, right? Who literally? Wow, he would be perfect for this. Who literally threatens Armageddon over some stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, I, well, I still George, think George W. Bush was also. I mean, he was an actual model of this approach to some degree. He didn't take it necessarily as far. I mean, remind me. Maybe I'm forgetting. When did he? When did he rattle the saber over human rights? That's the difference. Oh, during the Freedom Agenda. Did he say he would like? go and like do military shit if like things where did where do you do that that was, uh, no, that was no, retroactive I, I, on iraq like that was sort yeah, of just like yeah i fucked up on iraq oh no i did it for freedom like that, <laughs> exactly. that's different right like exactly but the sense of unpredictability yes it's true that w didn't directly tie it to human rights and democracy until a little bit later as a kind of rhetorical gambit yeah but the fact that he did um invade iraq in the way that he did, I think made a lot of autocrats in the region fearful. Yeah, and okay. then yeah. his pressure on democracy vis-a-vis -vis Egypt and others seemed more Incredible. something that they had to take a little bit more seriously because they were like, this guy is really focused on the Middle East yeah. and he really seems to want to quote unquote transform it. Hmm. So do we really want to test him all that much he seems like a he's a true believer, or he seemed like he was a true believer, and he seems to be very comfortable with confrontational, aggressive foreign policy. So you you kind of, and I suppose neocons more generally capture these two instincts: a kind of idea around the universality of human rights and democracy that all peoples, cultures, and religions are capable of being free and being democratic, but also a preoccupation with the US military as the tip of the spear. But so that, but two episodes ago or one episode ago, you were against going that far. You, you didn't like the idea of actually militarily threatening 
regime change in order to right to affect uh, change. I'm just being descriptive here. Yeah, I'm yeah, just describing yeah. how the neocons view it. Yeah, I'm just wondering because you're so taken by Trump's bullying, and you're saying <laughs> it would be interesting to sort of put these two together. Well, there's your neocons. So, like maybe maybe you're working yourself up to embracing neocon neoconservatism. Which look, who knows? Who knows? There could be changes in my opinions in the coming months and years. It's mm -hmm. really hard to tell. Sure, um, I'm kind of joking, but. <laughs> Um, but I, I have always been someone who takes this idea of like, we are a superpower and we have to act like it. It's not enough to just be empirically a superpower. Like people can look at the metrics and say, oh, China has no real chance of overtaking the US on all of these different economic and military metrics, fine. But perception matters as well. And how people how people perceive, like, we are a superpower, but we have to act like it. And those two things are not exactly the same. There is a gap between them. And I think Americans have to find a way to close the gap. Because people do push us around. I mean, even small powers and junior partners like Saudi Arabia, as we've talked about in previous episodes, um when Biden visited Saudi Arabia last summer, Mohammed bin Salman gave him the diplomatic equivalent of the middle finger. He basically said, fuck you, Biden. And we went along with it and we indulged it. So we were a superpower, but we didn't act like one. And other countries, whether they're allies or adversaries, are gonna find a way to exploit the gap between who we are and how we act, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. But, you know, I wonder, you know, the other the other bit of news in the last few weeks was that, you know, that uh, the Saudis effectively gave us a bit of a middle finger by, you know. That's uh, all they do now. But, you know, they, they negotiated some sort of rapprochement with Iran vis-a-vis -vis China. Yeah. And um, I guess I guess my question is, is, you know, there was a there was a, a uh, headline, I think it was in Politico, uh, said that like um, uh, Tony Blinken quoting, saying like, in every meeting I have with the Saudis, I bring up LGBTQI, T plus whatever, like, you know, with them, like gay rights with them. And uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of what, you know, if you're, and it is the thing, I think that, you know, a lot of your interlocutors in your last book, when you were bringing this up, uh, basically you, you were advocating, you know, you, you do, you don't have to like threaten that serious things, but like threaten military aid, you know, start cutting that and like breaking those alliances. I mean, even without threatening that, uh, they're modulating now towards, you know, towards China. Now, again, probably China can't replace us. So maybe your argument still holds, but I'm saying like you have evidence that, 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 that Blinken in any case was standing up for rights. Uh, maybe not like the preferable order of rights, maybe better to be focusing on democracy rather than, uh, you know, a more niche thing of like minority rights for uh, for gays. Okay, but, but he wasn't presenting any consequences. So it's just meaningless rhetoric. We like, so Blinken brings up human rights in his meetings with Saudi counterparts, but there is actually no real, like the Saudis won't do anything you tell them unless you threaten them with punitive action or you encourage them with carrots, it's gotta be one or the other. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Saudis now know 
that we're not actually willing to put anything on the line. We're not willing to suspend military sales. We are not willing to consider grounding their military because if we withhold spare parts and maintenance and logistical support, we could ground Saudi jets and tanks in the matter of weeks. But the Saudis know that that's not something that we're thinking about or talking about. So we're like, okay, let Tony Blinken talk. If he wants to just go back to his constituencies and say, well, oh, I spoke to the Saudis about human rights. And then everyone's like, ooh, rhetoric. I mean, we have a, we put too much value on rhetoric. Rhetoric is meaningless and perhaps even counterproductive if it's not backed up by military power. And that's something, Demir, that you've helped me realize over the years, that it all comes back to violence, hmm. the threat of violence. Hmm. That's something that you would probably say. Yeah. But but I <laughs> but I do want to raise something about this Blinken thing, and we'll include a link to this Politico piece in the show notes. It's actually from last year, but I don't remember seeing this. It's like bonkers. Basically, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State. He told political reporters that he brings up LGBTQI rights with his Saudi counterpart, quote unquote, invariably in every conversation. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. Every conversation you have with your Saudi counterpart, you literally bring up LGBTQI rights? First of all, like, I mean... I probably don't have to explain why this is just like absurd on any number of levels. First of all, I didn't know that it's now called LGBTQI. I thought it was LGBTQ plus. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know if he said the I. I don't know. I guess. Oh, it's true. Quote. Maybe that was just Maybe political. It was just some headlining. But anyway. Oh, yeah. true. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, the point is, okay, this is a country that doesn't even have a parliament. There are like no basic rights, political rights. This is this is not just an authoritarian regime. It's one of the most brutal authoritarian regimes in the world. You can be arrested for a tweet that's not even explicitly critical about the regime, only if the tweet goes against regime priorities. It's just nuts. Now, so Tony Blinken is spending, I don't know, three minutes of a 30-minute conversation on LGBTQ rights in Saudi Arabia, where even women don't have equal rights, where women were only granted the right to drive a few years ago. This is crazy. Anyway, that was just like a little, but it's things like this that I think make it hard for other countries to take us seriously. It's a clown show. They're like, these people, these people are not serious. Yeah, They're smart and they're competent, but they're at a fundamental level, they're not serious. So, I mean, that that sort of gets at what we we started this conversation on, which is this feeling one has um, when watching the Biden folks. And you know, I, I've said it on the pod before. I haven't written it yet, uh, or maybe I have. I don't remember. Um, that that actually on Ukraine in the run up, I I do think Biden uh, handled it better and maybe the policies I would have preferred in the run-up to the war wouldn't have ended up playing as well. So, I mean, I think credit where credit's due on certain stuff. But but like the, the bigger picture, it seems to be sort of emerging. Um, and maybe it's unfair because 
like you said, you know, I'm following the news and you're not. And so maybe I'm just like caught in a trough of news right now. And, and it seems grimmer. But but there's a sense, you know, there's a, this parallel between, you know, bullying uh, balls out Trump versus Biden, you know, uh, like quietly managing. There's this question of priorities and sort of like box checking and rhetoric versus actually a plan for anything. But you just get a sense that that the Biden folks, they're just really pushing to get through the next cycle more than anything else. That um, and maybe that's fair. Maybe they've 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 you know, calculated that the country can't bear it and they can't like the country can't bear stronger leadership. So they're just trying to, you know, do as best they can with, you know, that one hand tied behind their back. But maybe it's also tied to this because this is, you know, many ways like the third Obama administration that what you also alluded to earlier, that sort of progressive optimism about the world, which is, Hmm. you know, uh, you you, should, you don't have to do too much, like avoid getting into catastrophic wars, et cetera. The arc of history is bending our way, you know, sort of maybe a faith that China will implode and it might, um, you know, that uh, it won't come to war and it might not, um, that, uh, you know, they played Ukraine right. Uh, the Russians are exhausted at this point. Uh, it's not clear whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going to lead to a breakthrough, but even if it doesn't, even if it's a stalemate, um, Russia's pretty much ruined and, you know, America didn't have to go to war. So great success. I, I, you know, I mean, I have a lot to quibble with that characterization of Ukraine, uh, and maybe even on the characterization of China, but it's, it's, it's defensible on the merits. But I guess what I'm getting at is like, as someone who's like watching events closely and maybe a little, uh, concerned about where things are, it does feel like maybe the world's getting away from them a little bit. Um, mm. Mm. That that the that preoccupation of making it to the next cycle, uh, that preoccupation of you know steady hand on the tiller because America can't uh, take uh, the upset of you know of a really bold policy one way or the other, um, that timidity maybe is letting is getting them to a place where they've misjudged a lot and uh, maybe catastrophes come. I mean, I guess history will be the judge. There's no way to really tell that. But I guess that's where I'm at. That's that's what's sort of gnawing at me at this point. Um, and I largely and, and that's my sense as well. And even well before this recent spate of not very positive news, there I always had this sense that there was just something about the Biden team that just didn't seem up to the occasion you felt maybe more secure than you would have under a Trump administration for sure. Because let's say even hypothetically that Putin didn't invade Ukraine if Trump was president. Still, there was always a sense in the Trump years that like things can all, you don't feel like there's any steady hand, that there aren't people in government who are just like vaguely competent. And there is a sense of security with the Biden folks, that they are sufficiently smart and competent that the world will not end immediately, right? But that's a very low bar. And where they might have the intelligence and the competence, they seem to have a lack of a certain je ne sais quoi. And 
I was going to describe what that je ne sais quoi is, but that's precisely what the French phrase means. It means I don't know what. Right. Well, I mean, maybe that that I <laughs> that je ne sais quoi is uh, again just to push on that 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 thing. It's 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 the toxic um, belief that the world is getting better. That you know that. And you see it again, and you know I'll press you on this because this is something that that we've gone back and forth on before. It's this framing of autocracy versus democracy. I mean, I think that's that's one of the 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 things that I, I think is I think Walter Mead wrote about it two weeks ago, um, and it is it is sort of like a set of worldview blinders for them, which is you know Trump is the face of autocracy as is Putin and she and the rest of it. So there's like, there's almost like a global transnational struggle of Democrats versus authoritarians. And so you get this kind of like bleeding over of that conviction, which ties to that progressive con conviction you, 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 you said about before, right? This idea that, uh, the Obama idea, the, the arc of history bends. Um, and that, that leads to a kind of I don't know. Again, it's 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 a kind of complacency. I mean, I guess you know one could also like look at it a different way and come up with a different conclusion. But it's it's that sort of thing that leads to uh, a kind of both complacency and self satisfaction and timidity at the same time. You know, well said. Um, yes. And and it's it's I, it still comes back to me that that I, I you know at the end of the day I just don't think that the autocracy versus democracy thing really holds that much water as a framework. I mean, I understand where, where you come at it from and maybe like a, you know, a militant uh, democratic agenda could make something like that work. Um, huh, maybe I should write a book about that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, um, I, 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 uh, I'm struck that that like on the merits that framework's actually not working right now. Um, like analytically, you know, you mentioned Lula because that's something I, I mentioned to you in the before we started recording. But you know, he's he's in China right now and uh, basically doing the whole BRICS. You know, we must stand up against the West and you know the former colonial powers and the rest of that the global South phenomenon. Um, you know, I, we can we can argue about how significant that is, but certainly one thing we can't argue about is that. Uh, Brazil's great democratic success in throwing off the authoritarian dictator Bolsonaro and replacing him with the true Democrat Lula, who was embraced at the Summit for Democracy and all the rest of that. Off he goes to China uh, to, to, you know, play his little games. And You, you know, know what else he said, which is mm. crazy just to add so listeners understand what we're talking about here. I was thrilled that Lula won. I, you know, uh, so that was, but... But... Well, also, like, it was unfair what happened to him. I mean, he was sure. put in jail on trumped-up charges. Yeah. And um, that allowed Bolsonaro to become the president of Brazil because Lula was no longer in competition because of his legal situation and then being in prison. Um, so there were real consequences for Brazil in that regard. And Lula was also always, I think, um, an exemplar of a new kind of socialist Democrat that you could still be firmly on the left in a Latin American context, 
but that democracy could accommodate that without having excessive polarization or even civil conflict because throughout much of the Cold War, whenever there was a threat or a possibility of a left-wing politician winning elections, you know, things sort of fell apart. So it was positive in that respect. But then I see Lula saying kind of crazy things. Well, they're not crazy. I suppose they're the sorts of things that a leftist anti-imperialist would say. So maybe I shouldn't be surprised or disappointed. But at a January news conference with the German chancellor, Lula said, apparently he was suggesting that Ukraine bears at least some responsibility for the war. And the quote was, if one, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Um, (laughs) The quote is, if one doesn't want to, two can't fight. Which is a little bit confusing. I think that that might be a bad translation. But what he's saying is that it takes two to fight, basically. Yeah. And so Ukraine has a choice. Yeah. And they're they're partly fueling this war. Yep. Which is obviously off-putting to many of us. Right. Um, no, but I, I, you know, I whatever we can we can analyze where this comes from, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just I'm more interested in pushing that question about about you know. Again, it's partly democratic peace theory. It's partly this American sense of progress. It's partly this Biden frame of authoritarianism versus democracies. I think again, it's I've I've always sort of felt it in my gut that countries are going to you know uh, not really abide by those supposedly core values to have them stick together. That like uh, you know democratically elected leaders and especially ideological ones. And again, I don't I don't mean ideological as a slur. I just think that you know. There's a lot of grievance and uh, like a, a well-developed ideological framework for a lot of leaders in the global south to channel that resentment, uh, that that resentment over colonialism, over post-colonial treatment, over their status in the world. Uh, just there's a lot of resentment there. So you know, I, again, it's 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 far from incongruous to me uh, to see what Lula's doing. I'm not surprised. You know, the 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 articles are like, oh great disappointment among people who really were banking on like democratic renewal. I'm like, come on guys, like, come on. Like none of this is surprising. Um, and you know, we talked last week about, um, about Modi and, and, and democracy, uh, there. And that's a different case because of populists, you know, uh, really bringing into question what, what qualifies as a democracy. Um, you know, and that's what the discussion was about. But I think, in Brazil's case, and so far as I know, that, that, that's not the question here. This is something else at play. And there goes the authoritarianism versus versus democracies. And now, again, you, you could still, I think, make a case that that in the medium to long term, Brazil will come to its senses when they figure out what yes, China is exactly. Precisely. Maybe. Uh, but again, if the Chinese are smart and, you know, they don't really have any um, uh, real direct beef with, with Brazil... Uh, I think they can buy them off. Uh, they're a huge market. Uh, Brazil has a lot to give. There's uh, there's lots of opportunities for this, and and again, there's underlying that is this assumption that like de- people in democratic societies care about democracy worldwide, and I'm just not sure that's the case. I just I I just I've never been convinced of it. So I mean, you know, I always sort of assert that, but I feel like here I have like a pretty cut and dry counterexample to to put before you. So I don't know, just curious how wait, you- how Wait, you, are you saying that Brazilians, so i.e. people who live in a democracy don't care about democracy elsewhere, or am I miss- 
That's more or less what I'm saying. I'm saying that that basically one of the tenets of democratic peace theory is that the the you know the value of of basically uh, all the values attendant to democracy will uh, lead democratic societies to clump together for also for reasons because if a, an elected leader were to come and start supporting a non-democratic society, he would probably pr presumably pay some sort of penalty. I, I'm going to guess that Lula's going to pay no penalty on this. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but you know. Yeah, I have thoughts on this. So, well, first of all, Brazil and Latin American countries have a very particular context um, when it comes to these long-standing grievances against the U.S. because of developments in the Cold War, as I alluded to earlier. So it's understandable, and in some ways it's comparable to what we might expect in the Middle East if there were democratically elected Islamist parties, as I've often said, they are going to be anti-American in certain ways that we won't be thrilled about and that we have to absorb those costs. But we absorb them in the knowledge that there has to be a greater, broader, longer-term strategy where we stay the course and we try to build better relationships with small D Democrats wherever we might find them, whether they're socialists in Latin America or Islamists in the Middle East, because at the end of the day, these are, these are parties that benefit from democratization. They benefit from not turning back to an authoritarian past, and the US can play an important role in that in buttressing these young democracies and strengthening them going forward. But we have to make an effort not to alienate leftists in Latin America just because they seem like they occasionally play footsie with China and Russia. Um, so we can't punish Brazil. Like that's I'm, not the solution to okay, this, I mean, punishing countries that don't align with our national security interests. But I, I am relatively confident that in the longer run, democracies will realize that they share something with us at a fundamental level, which does have major implications. Um, Here, here's, here's, a, here's just like, a, you know, before you get to another point, because I, I think this is interesting, right? Um, I mean, I, I wasn't suggesting anyone punish Brazil for this. I was just sort of poking holes in the authoritarianism versus democracy framework. But you know, I think I think if you asked Lula about American democracy, he would say an American a democracy has 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 repeatedly fucked us. The, the history of Latin America is the American democracy fucking us. And so we have would, to show him that no, we're going to stop but, fucking him. Okay, but you know that requires I mean, a longer term vision. It but it was requires we, it. Yeah, we're not we weren't just fucking him because of the Cold War and communism, though. I mean. That's a bar big part of it. But I think, you know, Lula's and I think a lot of leftist sort of well-developed ideologies has to do with, with, with capitalism on this. And I think of twinning of a certain kind of capitalism and democracy, right? That like it's a certain kind of Anglo-capitalist democracy, which tends to imperialism. So the framework for him is not authoritarianism versus uh, democracy. The framework for him is, uh, uh, you know, a free independent set of countries like Brazil um, and a bunch of imperialist scum. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure uh, if you really were to, well, I don't know, actually, Lula, I don't know what his opinions are on, on the CCP and like actually 
the communist government. I don't know how, how far his leftist sympathies go if he's in that mold all the way. But, uh, you know, a, a softer version of it would be like, yeah, China's uh, a piece of shit country too, but like certainly certainly the enemy of my enemy is my friend um, in that sort of sense. And and the enemy, the bigger enemy is the, is the near imperialist. That's a far imperialist and we can trade with them. It's fine. That's a very coherent worldview that has nothing to do with democracy and authoritarianism. And that that is legitimated through a democratic outcome, which presumably wasn't a worldview that was smuggled into this election, but was actually shared by a lot of voters that were like, yeah, that's right. So yes. again, it, it just, you know, my question is, is one of like, how foundational is that democracy versus autocracy thing? I guess that's always been my question about this and my, my pushback against it. Yeah. Look, because if, very, if that's the framework mm, for everything, it's just like, I think it's, it's suffocating and you miss stuff. It's a very, it's a very fair point. Anytime when you have a generalized framework that you try to apply to a large number of cases, not everything's going to fit. And, and that's the difference between a framework and a blueprint. So I think the framework is a good way for us as Americans to understand our role in the world. It's a good way to understand that the stakes with China and Russia and China in particular as a country that wants to see more authoritarian countries just like it. Maybe not, they're not trying to export a Chinese model or some kind of Confucian thing, but all other things being equal, China prefers systems that looks that look more like its own, a natural thing. Um, so I think that, and there will be cases where this framework doesn't fit, especially in the global South, because of a particular history, which is specific to the colonial and post-colonial experience. Um, but I don't think that invalidates the broader insights that come from the framework about what are the about the inherent strengths of de democracies as a regime type and the inherent weaknesses of authoritarian regimes as a regime type. Like, so my argument comes back to something quite basic that authoritarian regimes are inherently unstable in the medium to longer term. They are risky propositions. They're unlikely to stand the test of time. They're able to cover profound weaknesses through authoritarian manipulation. And I think there's been a lot of coverage and, and more recent academic work on how, and, and historical work, on how the Chinese economic miracle was not actually an economic miracle. The, the, that, I think that, um, What's it? Uh, Decatur's book, I think, uh, makes one version of this argument. Frank Decatur. Mm, don't know it, but yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, let me um, let me just make sure I'm pronouncing. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I I didn't get his last. It's a. It's probably some Dutch. It's almost certainly a Dutch last a name. A Dutchman. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll put it in the show notes as that Dutch book shot he's talking about. <laughs> but he has his book called China After Mao: The Rise of a Superpower, where he does try to challenge some of the conventional wisdom uh, about how we view China and and the fact that we bought into this <clears throat> discourse around the rise of China. Yeah. So much so that Americans can't even get beyond it. We still think of China as a rising power, even though one might argue that it's been declining in certain specific ways in recent years. But anyway, I think that 
if China is going to continue sh showing its weaknesses, then will a country like Brazil really want to hitch its fortunes to China in the longer term? Yeah. And I think I think if we believe in our if we believe that we have something to offer that we have a competitive advantage compared to China in part because of regime type, then let's own that, let's act like it. And let's you know, we're not going to be able to make things up to Lula overnight because his grievances are long standing, but we could also I think do well to pay a little bit more attention to Latin America. Like, we don't have a Latin American strategy. Sure. No one even cares about Latin America. When was the last time you heard someone talk about the Biden administration's policy towards Latin America? Right, right. Which gets to your bigger concern. The Biden administration doesn't have, it wants to manage. It wants, it wants to prevent things from becoming worse. It wants to get to the next election cycle or to the next year or whatever the short-term period is. And there is a timidity that comes from doing foreign policy in that way. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe as a as a, a closing thing for the, the bonus episode, uh, let me give you a, uh, a case for why we may not go to war with China that still flies in the face of of democracy versus uh, uh, versus autocracy it doesn't necessarily fly in the face of it, but it's interesting. Okay. Uh, your colleagues at Brookings uh, was earlier this year at some point. They I guess they do this quarterly tracking Taiwan project. Yep. Um, the polling in there is fascinating, and it just it it it, um, it jumped out at me uh, largely because I, I I had this sense when I was in Taiwan and, and talking to people, um, and that's. Uh, Echoes in some ways, uh, you know, some of the stuff that 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 uh, Emmanuel Macron was saying after his visit to China uh, just now. Um, for readers' benefit, uh, you know, Macron got back from China, and in two interviews he gave, he said something along the lines of, you know, Europe needs to be independent enough to not get uh, sucked into, you know, a conflict of the United States' own making with China. Um, the polling and that Brookings stuff in Taiwan was actually pretty similar, but of course it, it breaks down. Taiwan's a vibrant democracy, and 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 uh, you know it breaks down by different parties. Um, but uh, especially the KMT, who are out of power and may well win the upcoming elections, um, they feel that like that Nancy Pelosi's visit uh, was actually bad for Taiwan, um, and uh, certain other questions. How would you describe the KMT as a party? Maybe and also just spell out the party, just so uh, KMT are is aware. Kuomintang. They were the party uh, that actually comes from Chiang Kai-shek, who who founded Taiwan, like after fleeing yep. mainland China. Uh, the party that's in power right now is called the DPP, the Democratic People's Party. I don't know. I might be wrong about what it stands for. It's the DPP. They're the the hardline, or though they've they've lowered the temperature, but they were the the, the Independence Party, um, okay. and so. Uh, you know, the, the paradox is, is that KMT, the party of Chiang Kai-shek, the founder of Taiwan who ran away from the communists, is actually much more dovish on China and feels that uh, that basically America is is going to pull Taiwan into a, ca a catastrophic war. Now, again, this doesn't fly in the face of, of you know, all of the sort of, you know, democracy autocracy stuff. I do think that that you know, if the Chinese miscalculate and do invade, uh, obviously a lot of that sort of sympathy and empathy would go away. Um, but it is interesting that that 
you know, and this is, I guess, my model for us not going to war, is that if the Chinese are capable, and they might not be for all the reasons you say, you know, autocracies don't, you know, can't sometimes control their behavior or like act stupidly in ways that seem smart to them. Uh, but if they're able to control this, um, they have a lot to play with. Uh, it's basically to keep scaring the Taiwanese population about war. And then, you know, if the KMT were to win the next election, give them a lot of carrots while changing the status quo, like not back to this kind of, you know, pre-1992 sort of thing, but actually much closer in favor to China. And if the Chinese are able to sort of do that, um, there's a there's a there's a credible path where this doesn't lead to war, that there is some kind of, if not full peaceful reunification, but a lot more of a growing closer between Taiwan and China. And Taiwan as a democracy slowly, uh, in the interest of its own prosperity and peace, uh, mortgaging some of its freedoms, basically, uh, towards towards China's encirclement. And again, you know, the, the thing that I think of in the my, back of my mind there is, uh, is, is actually Hong Kong. Now, you know, Hong Kong, um, we like to talk about it about, you know, uh, a sense of betrayal, you know, the Chinese made some promises, and then we all saw the, the, the repressions and the democracy activists and, you know, the, the, basically the huge crackdown that happened and all the refugees that left Hong Kong. But the other reality in Hong Kong is that like the business elites, which I think represent KMT in Taiwan as well, were like, well, I can do business with this. This is fine. Um, and Hong Kong's still there. There's a lot of people still doing business, working and living in Hong Kong with, you know, fewer freedoms, uh, still somehow negotiating it. I, you know, they're not... And and it's... it's I, I wonder if that's not the future for Taiwan. And maybe I wonder if that's not the way that, again, the sort of democracy versus autocracy as a predictive framework at this point doesn't fully lead to to uh, that kind of, you know, uh, black and white moral clarity conflict. Now, as Taiwan starts shedding its freedoms, will there not be uh, pro-democracy protesters? Will there not be repressions against them? Absolutely, there would be. And they may even come from, you know, a, a Taiwanese elite that, that sees it as as dangerous to allow these people to agitate. Um, but again, I, it's just, it's, it's, that's a, a really grim, uh, from the democracy standpoint, read of how we may av avoid war over Taiwan, maybe not more broadly, but just like how the Taiwan thing, that's been rattling in my head for a while. And huh. I just saw that, uh, that Brookings uh, uh, poll survey uh, just the other day. And uh, it just sort of clicked, that clicked for me as a, again, just a theory of the case. I don't know if it's, if, if it's, uh, if uh, that would be a out. fascinating scenario. Yeah. You know, it's in, it doesn't make me, like, let's say that there was some hypothetical referendum where the Taiwanese people could vote as to whether they wanted to move uh, more more close, uh, clo more close to China, and I imagine there's a number of institutional arrangements that that one might have in mind. I don't know what that would look like, but if they, you know, if if the Taiwanese people chose to give up some of their freedoms through the democratic process, you know, it does, you know, it, it does raise an interesting. I mean, my view has always been that you can't. You can't decide through the democratic process to stop being a democracy because then you deprive future electorates or even future versions of yourself from changing your opinion. So at a, at a basic level, I've I've never really bought this argument. The idea that oh well, people will say, well, Shetty, what if 
the citizens of X country chose to become a monarchy and not a constitutional one. Well, I suppose, I suppose they could, but then it would no longer be, I mean, anyway, yeah, no, uh, it's I a little it. bit of a yeah. tangent, but yeah, no, no. but it isn't it like, I, I hadn't, I don't know. It doesn't seem super likely to me from the little that I know about Taiwan simply because you know, a, a strong sense of tai Taiwanese identity and nationalism to one degree or another, and a sense that they are fundamentally different. There's also a particular history of people leaving the mainland to be a part of this new national experiment. It would be a major reversal, just a profound transformation of cultural and political attitudes for the Taiwanese to say, Oh, we're ready to be absorbed into China. No, yeah. I look, I just I, I want to stress it's not exactly what I'm predicting that they like that there'd be a vote or anything like that or anything. It's more like a slippery slope argument. Uh, yeah. you know, in the sense of like how how it could like Taiwan could get there without actually an invasion uh, at all. Yeah. Um and uh, you know, the other thing that 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 drove this point home is in some of the conversations uh, me and my group had in, in Taiwan was um you know, on the very question of international recognition, uh, when sometimes that would come up, like there's very few countries that actually recognize Taiwan. Um, and, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was Ecuador actually just flipped, China flipped them. Um, oh, wow. They were recognizing it and then they derecognized it. But, the, you know, unlike, for example, the place that I spent a lot of time working on, Kosovo, where, where they are so obsessed about international recognition, they tie the vi viability of their state to not losing recognizers. And there's a huge ongoing sort of battle between, you know, uh, Serbian diplomatic uh, efforts to get countries to unrecognize Kosovo and then Kosovo and mm. the United States trying to like prevent that from happening. The Taiwanese, you know, at least in one or two conversations said like, you know, that's, that's, that's not how we think about it. Uh, what's important to us is not international recognition. We're fine in this gray zone, ultimately, where we uh, are very successful and prosperous democracy. Uh, but, you know, where uh, what's important to us is to be included in uh, international fora, like especially the international trade fora, that we have representation in that. Uh, a seat at the UN, I mean, would be nice, but like, eh, it's not, not, it's like not, not the issue. I found that so fascinating, and I think telling in a way because that also tells you something about, um, potentially tells you something about, uh, uh, you know, how one could imagine uh, this slide into uh, greater and greater uh, Chinese. I don't know influence, sway, control, maybe not direct, you know, Communist Party comes in, like a fair bit of, 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 uh, of self-rule still allowed them, but, but, you know, basically the embrace, you know? Um, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you are the resident Asia expert on <laughs> the podcast because you to went to better. Japan. Yeah, exactly. You went to Japan for a week and you That's came right. back an expert. That's how it goes in DC, I think. <laughs> you know, for for a future episode and maybe just to tease our listeners and viewers a bit, I would like to have a more in-depth conversation about it is about a counterfactual, so maybe there's a limit to how much we can talk about it, but I wonder 
I wonder if there are other analysts who have thought about this question of whether Putin would have invaded Ukraine if Trump was still president. And like yeah. really to think think through those scenarios serious in a serious way. Because I mean, what do you think as just like a teaser for our subscribers? You, you know who I think we should have on to to talk about this with? John Bolton. That would be <laughs> that would be a fascinating conversation. I would be into that. Because honestly, you know, Bolton has always been of the sort of Trump school of diplomacy, basically, you know, just bully them and, you know, just push it really hard and the rest of that. But he also walked away horrified from that sort of thing. So I, you know, I, I think maybe I'm guessing he would say uh, if Trump was not a shit licking liar and in fact <laughs> did talk to Putin this way, maybe. But I don't believe it. That would be my guess, huh. what Bolton would say. But uh, Okay, we got to find Bolton then. I'm making yeah. a note of that. Yeah, let's definitely get Bolton on the list. It also does relate to like some first principle questions around human nature, like on the playground. Yeah. Like how did we feel when people would bully us? Like how did we feel like when the super popular group, i.e. the superpower, the US, like the jocks or whatever. Yeah, the jocks. We're the jocks and the... <laughs> Who are the nerds? The no, global no. South. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't part of the the jock group, so yeah. I was on the receiving end. Right. But I wonder because there's, I think there's two ways of looking at the playground mentality. One is that like everyone wants to be a part of the jock group. Yeah. Like you want to be cool like them, even if they're kind of mean to you. Yep. And even perhaps through their meanness it almost makes you want to be more like them. Yeah. It creates this kind of inferiority complex. On the other hand, if they bully you, like if they stuff you into a locker, that's a different level. So it's not just them being mean and them being like superior to you and making you feel like you're a loser. They're like literally stuffing you in a locker every day. Then you might say, well, look, if me and a few other people are getting stuffed in the lockers every day, we should coordinate and fight back. Yeah. So I think there's different ways of looking at the bullying hierarchy and some kinds of bullying are less effective than others. Yeah, yeah. But still, you almost, you, you hit on something else troubling, right? <laughs> yeah, there's almost like an S&M sort of level there. It's just like, oh, bully's so attractive. <laughs> like, you know what I want? I want to be bullied until you actually get bullied. And then you're like, I don't know if I like this. Where's my safety word? <laughs> <laughs> That is actually a really good note to end on. Yeah, my I think we've given listeners a lot, a lot of things to think about there. Yeah, yeah, maybe too much. <laughs> All right, okay, Sean. Demir. All good right. times. Bye. Okay, bye.